This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode 110. Let's do this. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm really excited that you're here. One of the questions I get a lot from passive investors is, how can I tell if an investment is a good thing and whether the sponsor or the syndicator behind it is actually someone I want to invest with? And a similar question I get from the sponsor syndicator side is, how do I put together an investor package that people can say yes to? And the key answer to both of those is being conservative in your underwriting. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be conservative in underwriting? How can I tell whether someone's putting together a conservative package versus someone's putting together an aggressive package? To help me grapple with that question, I have Omar Khan with me on the show, and he's got a finance background, super smart guy, but he's been using his magical powers recently for multifamily investing. He raises millions and millions of dollars, underwrites deals all day long, and this is kind of his bread and butter. So I wanted him to share with us what does it mean to be conservative in their underwriting? So let's get right into the show with Omar Khan. Omar, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Michael. It's a great honor to finally be on your show. Oh, it was fantastic. I can't wait to get into it. Before we do, just tell everyone a little bit about yourself. I have a typical finance background. I'm a CFA charter holder. I did 10 years of investing both in institutions and banks and you know, personally across real estate and commodities. I've done about $3.7 billion of capital financing and M&A transactions. And I've kind of lived around the globe. So I was born in Dubai. I lived in Toronto, Calgary, and now I live in Dallas. And primarily what I do is I raise capital and I develop underwriting models for large syndication deals. That is awesome. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about underwriting in the context of raising money. And so what we're going to do today is I want your perspective on, you know, both from the syndicator's perspective when we underwrite stuff and how we position that for the investors. And then also from the passive investor side, right? So when when they look at syndication models from a passive investor standpoint. So I love this topic and I want to really kind of get into, you know, kind of the biggest mistakes that syndicators make. And then we'll also talk about some of the questions to ask for the passive investor as they look at uh, models and then try to maybe detect some of these mistakes that some syndicators make. So let's talk about kind of the, the first thing, which is kind of the biggest underwriting mistakes that syndicators make. And I, I get it, right? The biggest conflict for the syndicator is, I want to make these numbers as attractive as possible mm-hmm. for the investor. But I can also backfire because number one, if the investor is sophisticated and smart, which a lot of them are, they will detect that. And worse, let's say they have happy years on and the returns are all fantastic and people get in the deal and the deal goes sideways, which is even worse. So what are, what are some of the biggest underwriting mistakes that you see syndicators making? You've hit it right on the head. You know, the biggest mistake you hit right on the head. A lot of people, especially in this stage of the cycle, are being told, you've got to do everything to get the deal. But the problem with doing everything with getting a deal is that you end up doing everything to get the deal. And oftentimes that can backfire you. So the biggest deal is that people overpay because they are overconfident in their ability to turn around an asset, as an example. And as a side note, not just underwriting, I can give you a personal example. A lot of finance guys, for instance, especially with my background, look, I work in banks, I work on the buy side and are working with big corporations, a lot of finance guys get overconfident in their underwriting ability. So they say, hey, just because it looks really good in Excel means, you know, this is an actual reflection of reality. And what we end up doing is that you end up being precisely wrong as opposed to be approximately right. 
of that. So that's one of the big issues we're doing. And like you said, there's an inherent conflict when you are a sponsor. You want to try to get the deal because, look, that's how you get paid. That's how you made your money. But what it does is then you have this emotional bias creeping in where you're essentially massaging the numbers. So you're trying to fit a round peg through a square hole. So the biggest thing is managing your emotions and trying to understand. Sometimes letting a, a couple of deals go by is actually a smarter deal. But it's really hard to do, Omar. I mean, I see it with some of our students, especially when you're new. I always talk about the, you know, the first deal. The first deal is so important and everybody agrees. And so there's this huge pressure to kind of do your first deal. And we've seen this before where you know, students are they're just so eager to try to do a deal that they have trouble being objective. Oh, yeah. See, Michael, this is where experts like you can come in, right? You have the experience, not just from a, hey, doing the real estate, but from a life experience point of view, where you know that sometimes you have to take a step back. Sometimes you have to go two steps back, to go five steps forward. And that's more along the lines of emotional management. I mean, that's part of your underwriting process, but that's more emotionally managing yourself. And that's something, look, you can learn the hard way or you can learn the easy way. But that's where mentors like you come into play, where somebody can hold somebody's hand and say, look, I think you're going down the wrong path. Or maybe you should reconsider these things. Yeah, I think this is where a mentor becomes in play. I haven't lost my shirt with real estate, but I did with restaurants. And I think a major reason for that is I didn't have any mentors. I was so happy-go-lucky, had a bunch of money at the time put into restaurants. And looking back on it, if I were to mentor myself, I would have slowed me down significantly. And I think this is certainly something where more senior people can look at a deal and go, hold on a second. Look what you're doing here. This actually isn't really that great of a deal. As a syndicator, what do you see some syndicators doing? I would say to kind of you know inflate the numbers a little bit and make it more attractive to investors. Well, first of all, people right off the top are very aggressive in their revenue growth assumptions. Because look, at the end of the day, and no matter how you cut it, at least a light value add, BC, multifamily sort of game is forced appreciation, for the lack of a better term. You can market it however way you want, but that's really the game, right? And with that game, really what you're focused on is a couple of things. How aggressively can you raise your rent? So rent growth protections. How aggressively can you rehab a property? So how aggressively can you get the rent premium? And then on the exit, for instance, if you can refinance or on the exit, what kind of exit cap rate are you using? Because that's where the bulk of your returns are being generated from more cases than not. So let's talk about the increase in rent. Yeah. So, so when you see an increase in rents, what is it where you might see a red flag when you look at a, a marketing or investor package? When you got to go, hmm, I'm not so sure about that. So in most major MSAs, we're talking secondary, but big secondary like Dallas, Houston, you know, those sorts of markets. Conservative people try to do between two, three and a half, four percent at most, depending on the submarket. I've seen people within the same submarket go five, six, seven percent at times. And look, the past two years, as an example, I live in Dallas, so I'm going to use that example. In certain some markets in Dallas, the past two years, you might have gotten on average a 6% increase in rent growth. But A, that's not a reflection of reality. That's just an anomaly, number one. So you can't just count on that and just extrapolate it forward. And secondly, it's better to be conservative going in because at the end of the day, none of your investors are going to complain if you give them more money. You know, they're not going to hate you if you give them the more, but they will definitely have questions if you said you were going to do, say, 15% and you really ended up at 13%. So trying to manage that situation is very important. So this is uh, upon stabilization, clearly. Right? It's difficult to show a rank increase of 5 or 6%, but what about when you're actually adding value? So you're doing a value-add deal. Oh, yeah. In that situation, when you're putting a bunch of money in, you're going to raise rents way more than 5% in mm -hmm. a value-add deal. But Nevertheless, what are some of the signs where you think that the syndicator sponsor might be a bit aggressive on their projections? Okay, that's a good question. I think the biggest sign that I'm seeing these days is how aggressive they are on their rehabs. So I'm seeing guys who are doing the first, second, or maybe even third deal. 
let's say they're on a 150 unit deal and they say, I'm going to renovate 130 units. But we both know that possibly in the history of mankind, no construction project was ever under budget or on time. Or rather, there maybe there's one construction project in the history of mankind. So right off the top, if you don't have great experience or rather great construction and project management experience, and you're just basically relying on your Excel sheets as an example, look, I'm an underwriter and it pains me to say this that everything can't be done on an Excel sheet. You need good, for instance, project managers. You need a good property management company. Just because your property management company is telling you that, look, I can aggressively rehab 120 units, well, that might not be an accurate reflection of reality. And then can you do it in that 18 to 24 months period that everybody says they can? And I can tell you right now, the way things are, with the market being where it is, even experienced syndicators are having a hard time finding the right general contractors, rehabbing as aggressively, and then staying within the budgets to make the numbers work. Well, not only that, but if you think about it, let's say you're raising rents by, I'll make it up $150 a month, and they're projecting the target rents within 12 months. You know, it doesn't seem very reasonable to me because what are they going to do? Are they going to kick all the tenants yeah. out and then renovate the project? I mean, so in other words, their income would have to go down to like essentially zero mm -hmm. for them to kick everybody out, right? So are they doing it on natural turns? And if so, you know, what's the turnover per year, 20, 25%? It might take two or three years for them to actually achieve those target rents, right? So the warning sign for me, when then someone goes right from 400 to $550 in year one, I'm like, really? How, how yeah, are you going to do that? Explain that to me. Yeah. No, look, you've hit, you've hit that right on the head, right? And the reason why you can say that it is A, because you're experienced and you've been around the block. So right off the top, you can just look at two or three numbers and go like, okay, something's off here. But a lot of passive investors, and even to be honest with you, sometimes a lot of sponsors who are starting out in the game, they hear stories of people like you, successful folks like you, and some other folks on podcasts and blogs. And they think it's just like you come in and you wave a magic wand and things get done. But there's a reason why you are where you are and a lot of guys are where they are. Because you put in the hard yards. And a lot of times, I'm sure you've had some failures, as you mentioned, but you learn from them. And it's not you just come in with a boatload of cash and things just start working. That's not the case always. Yeah, that's right. And one of the things also, and you mentioned it earlier, is you can do anything you want in a spreadsheet. And you can have the best financial model in the world and all your modeling is perfectly right. But the question is, what's behind the numbers? Exactly. Right. And so when we have student bring us, because we partner with students, they bring us deals and we raise money for that. And that's fantastic. We almost almost in the role of a passive investor, we start asking questions about the deal. And we, what we find oftentimes is the numbers behind the model aren't actually researched exactly. in any kind of way. So what's behind yeah. the numbers? How do you know the rents are $100 below market? So that's a good question. Actually, I was just having this conversation with an investor of mine. So a lot of people tend to think that there is some algorithm behind this, right? Where there's an equation and you put a number in and boom, it just comes out. That's not the case. You like, for instance, even when you're valuing any asset, not just real estate, any asset, what you're trying to do is not find a precise number, but you're trying to triangulate your answer. So within a range, can you with a reasonable confidence say, hey, it's between say 75 and $125, right? As an example, there's no precise number. So for instance, how you can start is go work with your property management. But don't just rely on them. Do your own research. Without even touring other properties, you could go to Craigslist. You can go to other areas and see Rentometer and see what is the average rent around. Now, is that the precise way? No, but that gets you started. The same way that your property manager is going to do surveys to get them started. And that's just scratching the surface. Now you've got to dig deeper. Maybe you need to visit the rest of the comps in your area, or, you know, like those shadow visits to kind of figure out, you know, where the rubber meets the road. But the more depth of research you have, the more different sources you have, broker reports, property manager, your own research, online resources, the better you can get as an idea of ranges. 
Because I find it really funny when people say it's $123 rent premium. I was like, man, that's really specific. You know, what if somebody comes and gives you $120? Are your numbers going to go all off? You know, you have to look at ranges and look at reasonability of ranges as opposed to precision. Because there is no precision. There is no precision. Like you said, the more data sources you have, the more confident you can be about your predictions. I often find that the best source is typically your property manager. You got to have a property manager so strong, they know the rents, they do the surveys, right? Uh, you can do Rentometer and Craigslist all day long. You can even yeah. use CoStar. But man, some of these things are so localized that you got to be able, so you need a good property manager. It's our opinion, right? And if you haven't actually spent a lot of time with your property manager, like you said, touring some of the comps or so, the way you can speak from firsthand experience, I ask you, why are you projecting a, the rents on $100? And you say, well, you know, I... I toured the, the area with my property manager. We looked at comps and we know exactly what we can do if we did X, Y, and Z. Now I'm like, huh, wow, there's really something behind that. But a lot of times that work is not done. Yeah, Michael. And look, think of it this way. You have actually hit on a very good point that you've got to work with your property manager. But your property manager also has to know that you're a serious player. You've done your homework. Because if you don't do your homework, guess what? On average, the property manager is not going to do their homework because they know they can coast with this client. Because whatever they say, the client is just going to accept. Yeah, that's funny you say that because we found that, you know, we would just be inclined to hand our property manager our performance based on our own research, which is, I'm sure was fantastic. But what happened is we gave them the pro forma and the property manager kind of go, yep, looks good. <laughs> Versus going, you know what, I'm not even going to tell you what my pro forma is. I'm going to give you the T12 and the rent roll. You give me your pro forma. And I'm not even yeah. going to say anything and see what comes up. Because now you have a true independent data source. And if it jives with your independent study, then you can be very confident. Of course, if it's different, now you have to investigate. The revenue aspect is a big one. The other one you mentioned is cap rate at exit. Why is that important? And what kind of underwriting would you like to see with the cap rate at exit? Well, look, why it's important is because on the way out, that is your big, I mean, quote unquote. I mean, that's not the only valuation metric, but that's the the generally accepted way of how you're going to value your property on the way out, right? Because what do we do when we're acquiring a property? We take the NOI, we normalize it, adjust it for one-time expenses, and we come up, hey, take the NOI, divide by the cap rate, and we find a purchase price. And that gives us a starting point, right? That gives us a starting point to understand. So on the way out, why do you think the rules were changed? Because you're going to sell it to somebody else, and they're probably going to do, go through, hopefully, same or a better level of exercise that you've gone to. So that's why the cap rate is very important on the exit. Ideally, I'd like to see between, say, usually in the three to five year average multifamily syndication deal, you know, an average anywhere between, say, 50 to 200 basis points higher. The reason why it's higher is because the higher the cap rate, it's an inverse relationship, right? The higher the cap rate, the lower the value. Couple of reasons. Nobody has a crystal ball. So it's better to be safe than sorry. Number two, we don't know where the economy is going. And with the way things are looking, real estate is very sensitized to interest rate movements. So on average, if you are a betting man, you're going to say, because the Fed's already raised rates four times in the past year, on average, there is a higher probability that by the time we either refinance or sell the property, rates are going to be higher. When rates are going to be higher, on average, property prices depress. So I'm going to assume anywhere between 50 to 200 basis points, depending on the market, depending on the product, depending on the asset. Yeah, and that's fantastic. If you see some of that, then, then you see that the sponsors are being conservative. What's another indication that the sponsor is being conservative that you can think of, or maybe not as conservative and a bit more aggressive? So I think apart from the rehab, the exit cap, and the rent growth projections, where the rubber really meets the road is how is their, A, their track record, obviously, so that goes without saying. 
what are their internal systems like? So you've got to ask these questions. I mean, the sponsors have to ask them themselves, hey, how can we improve? And passive investors also have to ask themselves, what's going to happen? Because it's not just say, hey, you bought a property, you handed it to a property manager, and now you're done, right? Because the hard part is actually when you bought the property and now it's in operation. So what are the processes around how frequently are the investors and the sponsors going to communicate? Are the financial statements audited on a yearly or a six-month or a quarterly basis? Who are they audited by? Because if your brother-in-law is auditing them, that's not really auditing them, right? And then internally, when there is an issue, how does the sponsor resolve it with their property manager? What kind of resources does the sponsor already have on their side? And what steps are they going to take to rectify an issue? A lot of people feel that you can't make mistakes and mistakes are going to happen. But I think a better reflection of how good or bad a sponsor is, is how they handle those mistakes. And how do they recover from this mistake? So if a mistake does happen, if a sponsor immediately raises their hands up, admits it and says, hey, here's my plan. So it's not a problem, but it's a solution to a problem. I feel that is a better sponsor to have in the long run than a guy who's not going to tell you everything and hope for the best in the future. And this is a great question. As a passive investor, the best question to ask is, have you ever lost money before? Yeah. And why? What happened? And how did you behave? Like I would almost prefer to invest with someone who's lost money before because they've been through the emotion and that process. And oh, I yeah. like to see how did that person behave? Because I've been on the receiving end of bad behavior when something went, went wrong. And then and on the other hand, I've been part of you know other ones where things didn't go quite as well. So what should a passive investor be looking for there to the answer to that question? So I think, first of all, the question you've asked right, cuts around down to the chase, right? But I think what you're looking for is not just necessarily the answer, but the way the sponsor is answering that question. And obviously, you have to you know, get references and all of that kind of stuff, hopefully. But the way they answer that question also reflects a lot about themselves and how they can potentially solve problems in the future. So for instance, if the investor provides you a, a, sorry, a sponsor provides you a holistic answer, look, mistakes happen. As an example, you can use the 2008 crisis, right? Look, I over leveraged, the market went against me, but here's how I need to recover. Now, if the sponsor keeps blaming the market all the time, you know, the market turned against me, my strategy was great. Well, your strategy wasn't good because you lost your shirt. So suck it up, right? So that's the issue. If the sponsor tries to understand, look, some actions that I did were not actually reflective of what was actually happening. And here's how I solved the problem. I think that's a better way of looking at it than a sponsor just never accepting any blame and just, you know, giving everybody their property manager, their partners, their investors, everybody the blame except themselves. And that's a good point. And along those lines, I always, you know, want to know how are you going to communicate with me, right? Yeah. So, so as a syndicator trying to position myself better for investors, what should my communication plan be with my investors? That's actually, I think, one of the most not asked questions around. I think at the minimum, you should follow at least a monthly communication with, you know, nobody's telling you to write the next great American novel, right? But like a little short email, which just kind of tells you here, here's what we said we were going to do. Here's what our business plan is, reality, what's happening. Here's what the difference is. Here's where we're going, right? Short, crisp email. Don't waste anybody's time. On a quarterly basis, provide more color, provide more grass, however you want to go about it. And on, on an annual basis, provide even more in-depth detail, number one. Number two, what the investor should also know is that, look, there's a difference. If you invest $50,000, but you call the sponsor up every day, you know, that's going to be hard, right? Because look, the guy also has to do a job. But look, if you're a $5 million investor, well, I guess you can get to pick up the phone and call the guy every week. So there's a level of difference. And obviously, nobody's going to be rude enough to say, hey, buddy, don't call me. You only gave me 50 grand. But investors also have to realize that the more calls you do, the more unnecessary details you ask, 
You know, if somebody missed their forecast by 1%, that's not the end of the world. But if somebody missed their forecast by 60%, well, now you've got to answer questions, right? So you have to understand what the magnitude of difference is. That's right. And in that case, that's where communication is key, right? If the project doesn't go as planned, you know, I've seen other sponsors simply just shut down. Oh, no, it's not going as planned. I'm just going to stop communicating. And that makes investors really, really angry. Yeah, look, think about it in your personal life also, right? Investors have to see, who do you value long term? You value somebody in a relationship long term that, look, things are going to happen regardless of which relationship you're in, right? With your wife, with your family, with your friends, anything, any other relationship, there's going to be ebbs and flows. But you have to know that the other person is at least at the minimum going to be truthful. And they're not going to selectively omit things just because it doesn't make sense to them. And I feel a lot of people, including myself, because I've been an investor also, I respect a lot of those people who raise their hand up and say, look, I screwed up. Things happened, but I'm trying to fix it. Here's my solution. I want to work with you. I think that's a better way forward. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and while the investors may not be happy, they're not going to start calling their attorneys or the federal SEC because they know what's going on. I think you know, investors just don't want to be blindsided you know, and they want to hear from you. And if you do those things, they might not love you, but they're not, like I said, they're calling their attorney. Sorry, it's like the golden rule, right? Treat others how yeah. you want to be treated yourself. If you follow the That's golden exactly rule, right. Honestly, nine out of 10 times, you don't even need to follow anything. else. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, I know you guys are really conservative and so are we. So some of the things that, you know, we look for, we highlight to our investors are, for example, the term of our loans. What Mm -hmm. can you talk about there? Because that's really how a lot of investors got themselves into trouble through obviously not buying for cash flow, relying on appreciation, but then also the short-term arms that they had and the combination of that really created. So if I'm putting together a deal together, I want to demonstrate conservative to my investors. What can I highlight regards to the loans that I get? Okay, once again, I think you've raised an excellent point. A lot of people think it's just the equity you bring in. So how much money am I investing? But what people forget is the lender is still giving you anywhere between 70 to 80% of the entire capital stack. So even as an equity investor, you're not the majority owner of this thing till you know the things gets done, right? So number one, right off the top, I feel these days, especially because of some deals that are coming through my desk, where people want to take on a zoomable debt that's maybe 12 months or 24 months. Because the thing looks great on paper, it's in a great market, but you know the existing buyer just, want, just wants to get rid of it. Why? Because their term is coming up and they don't want to refinance and everything. And in the hurry to get into a deal, a lot of people are going into these sort of loans where they'll have to refinance in 12 to 24 months. Well, the problem is, if you've got to refinance in 12 to 24 months, this is maybe your first one or two or three projects. And on top of that, you have a rehab project going on. Your back is going to be against the wall. So you may get through, but chances are you won't get through. So right off the top, looking at the debt, I think it's very important. And I want as long of a term as possible, even if it comes at the expense of a slightly higher interest rate. Because the reason why I'm trying to look for is I'm not trying to find the perfect investment. I'm trying to optimize how much peace of mind am I going to have long term? Because look, I might get a lower interest rate, but that might come at the cost of all the other terms. And I think people just focus on the interest rate and don't look at the entire term sheet, which I think is a big mistake. The other thing I think people, both sponsors and um, investors have to look at is the first question everybody asks you is, hey, what are the returns? Right? Which I think is the wrong answer to, to ask because the first question people should ask is, hey, what are the risks? How can I lose my money? Where can I lose my money? What are the exit strategies you have, if in, not just in selling the thing, but if I am losing my money, what am I going to do? Because once you understand how to manage the downside risk, it's like an old mentor of mine told me in banking, right? He said, look, son, if you manage the downside risk, the upside takes care of itself. So if you're not losing money, first of all, you're going to break even. 
which by it in it of itself is a victory, right? So you learn something. So that's how I would phrase it and think about these kind of things. Yeah, so the advantage of the long-term debt is that if the crap hits the fan three, four years down the road, I could ride it out because I have a 10-year oh, yeah. note. Now, if my plan was to refinance to pull a bunch of capital out, which would have bolstered my, my returns and I can't do that, then my returns are going to be lower, but I'm not losing my shirt in the deal. Now, sometimes though, in value-add deals, we might have to get a bridge loan. What is yeah. your approach to that? Because bridge loans, you know, there is some risk there. Uh, how do you approach that and how do you kind of position that to your investors? Well, how would I approach that is, look, if you're a newbie, and by newbie, I mean you've done less than 10 big multifamily deals. I'm not talking four, five, six, 10 units. I'm talking 100, 200 units, right? So if you haven't done at least a half a dozen to a dozen deals, I wouldn't even touch a bridge loan. And that's not saying you can't do a deal with a bridge loan. That's just saying that you're inviting more trouble than you want to be taking on with a value add deal. Now, if you're an experienced sponsor, you've got a track record. And by track record, I mean not just the financial side. You've got GCs. You have an experience of turning around properties, not only turning around properties, doing them on time, on budget, all of that kind of stuff. Then I can potentially look at it. But again, I would also see then how much capital are you bringing to the table? Because a lot of times what happens is people get cute. I'm going to take a bridge loan at like a 7% rate, but I'm going to raise the least amount of equity as possible. And I think in that particular case, what you really need to be doing is let's assume you want to raise $4 million. I would highly suggest take the pain, raise $5 million. Don't have your back against the wall because the last thing you can do during a rehab project is basically, you know, be getting up at night and thinking, am I going to run out of cash? Am I going to run out of cash? Don't do that. Even if it comes at the expense of, you know, 2% less IRR. Because at the end of the day, Michael, think about it. Why are we investing? Why are, why are you doing all of this work? You're doing all of this work because hopefully long term, it improves your quality of life and it improves the quality of life of your family and your future generations. So if you're going to be up at night, if you're going to not be able to sleep, well, what kind of quality of life is that? Yeah, here's the thing. It is all about risk management. It's yeah. not about, you know, return management, how much money. It's all about risk management, right? So as a co-sponsor putting together a deal, that is really my message to my investors. Here's how I'm managing our collective risk. And one is, of course, the loan. If we do have a bridge loan and we kind of do it with, you know, because sometimes we have to, well, we want to get out of that as quickly as possible. Yeah. We don't want to, if we can do it in 12 months, well, that's ideal because you know, in 12 months, hopefully the market won't change so much that I can't refinance. But three years down the road, a lot can happen, right? So if I need three years to get out of a loan, my gosh, that's a long time. So really hitting it hard and heavy, making sure we can execute it on the business plan and getting out of that bridge loan as quickly as possible is key. Mm -hmm. Now, you also said another thing, which is, you don't want to run out of money. So when you see an investor package, what do you want to see with regards to reserves, both upfront at closing and then during the project? So what is your underwriting guideline for reserves? So the way I look at that is basically I'm looking at it from the perspective of a lender. Because when you go in and you submit your underwriting and all of this thing, the lender essentially, look, investors are looking at how much more money can I make as an example, right? Whereas what the lender is looking at is, can I get the money that I've given this person back? That's the bare minimum they're looking for, right? So essentially what you're trying to do is liquidity management and cash flow analysis. So essentially it's a typical credit analysis sort of situation. What I'm looking for is A, what kind of cash crunches potentially are you going to have and how much reserves relative to that? So what's the ratio there, number one? Number two, I'm looking at what's your past track record like? Because a lot of times what happens is experienced folks like you have access to financing that newbies will not. Even if you have to course correct, you have enough gas in the tank that you can course correct. But some guy new to the game, their back is against the wall, Michael. They can't do anything. I'd like to see people have a good amount of reserve going into the deal. And we normally look for, if everything is nice and shiny, we still look for $1,000 per unit in cash reserves. Minimum. And, 
and one yeah. month operating reserve. And that's how I want to go into a deal. And, and the also thing that we do and you guys do as well is, you know, we put the reserves, the escrow reserves, you know, we take those out of cash flow. So we put those in our projections oh, yeah. above the line. And I see a lot of people, the reserves are, are normally missing or they're below the line. If you take $250 per door out of cash flow every single year, you know, that will put huge downward pressure on your NOI and your returns. I just see a lot of sponsors and investors not catching the fact that there's no reserves. So you sell this thing in five years from now, you know, the roof's got a lifespan of three or four years. There's no money in four years when to sell it yeah. to replace the roof. And now you have deferred maintenance, which is really going to hurt you. So where's all that money coming from, right? So if you're not taking that yeah. out of cash flow, so that's a big red flag for me. See, why are you saying these things, Michael? Without even looking at the underwriting, why are you saying these things? Because you've got experience. You don't even have to look at the numbers. You can just look at the chart of accounts and the way they're placed, and you immediately know whether it passes a smell test or not. And that's why I feel having mentors is so important in this game. Because look, it's not buying single families. Well, you know, the most you might lose is 20, 40 grand, and you'll kind of recover it, hopefully. You can lose your shirt here. This is why guys like you are highly in demand. And this isn't something you can, you know, take a weekend course and boom, you're ready to hit the big thing. It doesn't work like that. Uh, but as we just proved here with this short interview, there are certain questions that passive investors can look for and certain things a syndicator sponsor can do to position themselves in the best light for their investors. And we typically <laughs> highlight the conservative elements of our package. And we do this yeah. and we know that if we didn't do it, our returns would be much better. We've had the best success with that. You know, I talk about risk management. I think one of the things is the question that you asked earlier, what if, what if this doesn't go as planned? Like you as the investor should ask that question. You as a syndicator should always think about how to manage risk. I'm going to do a value add. I plan to refinance it in 18 months. What if it takes longer? What if it takes longer than that? What happens then? What if the market, what if we get into recession, right? Yeah. Do you have answers to those questions or is there no plan B? In other words, what margin for error is there? Okay, so that's a good question. So there's a couple of things. First of all, from a modeling and underwriting perspective, you see that everybody has a linear increase. It's 2%, 3%, da, 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 da. But we know in real life, things never go like this or like this. It goes like this. It goes in waves. So first of all, that's where a lot of people have issues. They just assume either things go up linearly or, you know, it's like uh, trees grow, grow to the sky forever. It's that sort of a mentality. But apart from that, even if you are doing it, you should do a lot of your sensitivity analysis and scenario analyses around IRR, exit cap rate, selling price, holding period, and even your rehab period to try to figure out when you look at it on a grid, you really have to try to figure out, okay, what if things don't work out? What is the worst case scenario? What if this thing completely changes? What if the interest rates just shoot through the roof? What if they stay the same? What if my rehab project, my property manager is completely out to lunch? So you know, when you have all of this data, when you have a lot of these sensitivity tables, when you have a lot of scenario management, it just gives you more ammo to understand that it's like the Mike Tyson thing, right? Mike Tyson very famously said, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. So you need to have all of your plans beforehand, all of your plan B, C's and D's beforehand, before you get punched in the face. Because look, over a five-year period, there's a good chance you will get a few punches. And it's not how many times you go down, it's how many times you get up. And the investor, has been my experience, their main concern is losing their money. Mm -hmm. Like they're aggravated if you don't give them the 15% IRR you promised, but they're going to be really upset if you start losing principal, right? Oh, yeah. So talk yeah. about the, the purpose of the sensitivity analysis, because that's really the, the crux of it, right? So what is a sensitivity analysis? What can the past investor you know, use that for? 
So very simply, put on a two grid table. So if you look at, you know, like an X and Y axis, right? What a sensitivity analysis can do is, let's assume you say, what is the sensitivity that my IRR, for instance, is 15% when my holding period is, say, instead of five years, it's three years. What is my IRR going to be? Or what if the interest rate changed from, say, 5% to 7%, you know, the market turns against me. So you have the, all of these numbers in a grid. And once you have them in a grid, what you can then from various investors can do is, look, one of my investors might be even more conservative than I am. And they might say, no, you say that interest rates are going to rise 100 basis points over the next two years. I feel they're going to raise 200 basis points. Well, they can just make their way up or down the table and see where their IRR lies, where their exit price lies, where all of these exit cap things lie, right? Once they see that, then they can be better informed and say, hey, does this deal still work for me? in the worst case scenario that I have mapped in my head. And once you're comfortable with the risk, because there is no riskless deal. So once you're comfortable with the risk, then you can have a more informed, educated investment. Most investors want to make sure that worst case scenario, they don't lose any money. Because in a correction, the stock market is going to go down south, 10, 20, 30, 40%, right? So people are actually losing principal. And so people are, I guess, open to the fact that they might be losing principal but we are not, right? So when we do sensitivity analysis, you know, our worst case scenario better not be losing any kind of principle. So our worst case scenario is that we simply extend the whole period, right? We tell, for example, our investors, we're going to be out in five years, but if things go wrong in, in year three or four and we can't sell in year five, well, then we're not, you know, we're going to hold another three years until we can ride it out. But that's really, you know, the purpose of the sensitivity analysis. What is the worst case scenario and how does that impact my money? Any other questions that passive investors should ask before investing mm-hmm. and or the sponsor that they, when they create their investor package and they present that, that they should highlight about their underwriting? So a couple of questions I, I would ask around are exit strategies, because you know the typical exit strategies are refinance or sell. But hey, when can you sell? What are the range of possibilities? Who can you sell it to? When you refinance, do you already have existing relationships with lenders? Because a lot of times people think you just force value and you'll walk into a bank and they'll just throw money at you. But that's not really the case. We both know this, right? Because the banks, for instance, their loan book might be tapped out. They just can't lend anymore to multifamily. So if you really only have one relationship with one lender who's tapped out, well, you're kind of out of luck, right? So trying to understand what are the exit strategies and what are basically multiple exit strategies and what are you going to do when things go south? And as an example, that sensitivity thing, that ties in with your debt thing, right? If you have long-term debt, you can then say on your sensitivity analysis that, look, It's five years. I have a 10-year term. I have five years more of runway, but I'm going to really hold on for another three years. Why can you do that? Because you've already thought of all of these things beforehand. Yeah, exactly right. So we covered a lot of ground here. And it sounds a little bit, I don't know, doom and gloom on the one hand, (laughs) all the risks of investing. I just want to kind of uh, raise it up a level a little bit. here. I think it's really multifamily is, in my opinion, literally the best investment in the world for various, various different reasons. Uh, the tax benefits, the above average returns, the performance of the asset during the recession, nothing better than multifamily. I think the message here, I think that we're sending here collectively is as a syndicator, be conservative in your underwriting and position yourself as a conservative underwriter. And as an investor, ask the right questions. Oh yeah, you're 100% right. Look, it's not doom and gloom, Michael, because look, I'm investing my own money and you're investing your own money. The whole point, like you said, we're trying to communicate is if you're an educated, informed investor, you can ask the right questions because you've gone through the pain of saving your money, right? So your money is very, should be very dear to you. 
So if you've gone through the pain, be informed, be educated. And I can tell you that most sponsors actually like dealing with more educated, informed investors because it gives them better perspectives long term. So it's just a better two-way communication and it's just a better experience for everybody. Yeah, exactly right. Love it, Omar. I appreciate you raising these very, very important topics. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Well, they can email us at Umar, O-M-A-R, at boardwalk, B-O-A-R-D, walkwealth.com. So that's Umar at boardwalkwealth.com. They can also text me at 214-727-8643 or join our mailing list through our website at boardwalkwealth.com. Awesome. Awesome. Omar, again, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, Michael. It was a big honor to finally be on the Michael Blunt's podcast. All right. Let's summarize a little bit here. Grab a pen and paper and just write these six points down here. Things to look for to make sure that you have conservative underwriting. And again, this is useful if you're a sponsor syndicator and putting together a package or you're underwriting, or if you're a passive investor and valuating an investor package. So number one is rents, revenue, right? So if they're going up too rapidly, why? Why are they? What, what can? What's behind those assumptions, right? So, if they're going up hundred dollars over what time frame? Are they are they going up hundred dollars in the first year or over three years, right? So, how aggressive is the sponsor being with rent income? And then, what's behind those numbers? How did they get those numbers? Did they do uh, rent analysis? Did they work with their property manager? Did they tour the properties? The more they've done, the better. So, what's behind those numbers? How quickly are they going up? And then once they're stabilized, what is the rent growth after that? Is it 2%, 3%, 4%? You know, what's behind that? Uh, another one is we didn't talk about too much, but are the, are the expenses, right? So the expenses on in each city varies a little bit by, by unit. For example, in Dallas, the average expense per unit might be $4,300 per year. And in Memphis, it might be $1,000 less than that, right? So there's some rules of thumbs that you can you can ask people you know, what is the average per unit expense? And if, if you, someone comes in at $3,200 for a Dallas property, you got to scratch your head kind of going, hmm, right? Another rule of thumb is expenses at 50 to 60% of stabilized income is another great rule of thumb. If it's a lot lower than that, maybe expenses are a little bit lower, okay? But then again, what's behind the assumptions? Another one is the exit cap, right? The exit cap rate, if the market is at 7.5% now in an area, then we really want to be using an eight cap on resale or even a bit, bit higher, right? So you don't really want to see a cap rate the same as it is today. And then the question is, well, how do you know it's a seven and a half cap market? What kind of research did you do? And why do you know about that, right? Then you never want to run out of cash. This is really important. So I want to see reserves going into the deal and I want reserves being put away during the deal. So again, we want to have enough in there for capital expenses and repairs. We want to get up there. We want to have enough operating income. You know, if something happens, you know, my gosh, you know, a fire or something, or, you know, that, and it takes a while for the insurance to cover that, or maybe a sewer backs up or something like that. We want to have cash to fix that. Because if we can't fix the sewer, well, guess what? Your tenants are going to leave and you don't have the money to fix it. It's going to, you're in a downward spiral, right? So you want to have reserves and you also want to be withholding reserves uh, during the term of the investment. So the normal rule of sum is $250 per unit per year. And that comes out every single year before the net operating income above the quote above the line. So that's very important as well. If you don't see that, not conservative underwriting. The debt, the kind of debt we have, long-term debt, 10 years minimum. If there is a bridge loan, man, we want to be really aggressive about getting out of that bridge as quickly as possible. So understanding the business plan and our ability to quickly execute on that is going to be key, right? So if we can get out within 12 months of the bridge loan, that's acceptable, right? If it, if it needs three years to, to, to get to the point where I can refinance and then the bridge expires, 
That's also a problem. Uh, also, I like to see extensions on our bridge. Let's say it's an 18-month uh, bridge and we don't think we need longer than 12 months to get out. Well, what if we do? What happens to the bridge? Are there extensions? Questions to ask, right? And then what are the exit strategies? I mean, the ideal plan A is we refinance in year five, return all the capital to the passive investor, and we enjoy the cash flow forever. That's ideal. But what happens if we can't do that in year five? Does the deal rely on it? Can we ride it out? What are the different exit strategies? So it's really all about risk management. Yes, the returns are above average. The tax benefits of multifamily investing are better than any other investment on the planet. But really, what are you doing as a syndicator to manage those risks? That's your responsibility. And then you also have to communicate that to the investor because you want to portray that you are conservative and that you are a good steward of their money. And as a passive investor, you want to look at an investor package and answer the question, how is this sponsor managing risk? What are the risk along the way? What is a sponsor doing? If something were to happen, does it have reserves? Yes. If we can't refinance in 12 months, do we have extensions? Yes. If, if we can't sell in year five, we need to hold another five years. Can we do that? Yes. Right? So each of these points of these risk points, what is the sponsor doing to address that? And that really shows a lot of maturity and experience to be able to do that right up front. So those are some of the key elements of uh, conservative underwriting. Hope you guys found that useful. If you are interested in investing with us, uh, we share a lot of the same principles that Omar has with his group as well. We talk about these things. It's very, very important. Go to the Michael Blanc, themichaelblanc.com forward slash invest, or just click on the invest button. You can learn more about investing with us, and we'll notify you of a deal when we, when we have one. Um, also, if you're a syndicator, you want to syndicate, and you want to learn the art of underwriting and how to be conservative and how to put together the investor package, then check out my course called The Ultimate Guide to Buying Apartment Buildings with Private Money. It's the best out there online course. You get tickets to our, our experiential event where we actually buy a 69 unit together. And that happens twice a year in the, in the spring and in the fall. So definitely check that out if you're interested in getting the syndication game yourself. And the first thing you can do if you haven't done it so is download my free ebook called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building Deal. Just go to the michaelblank.com forward slash ebook and download that sucker. It'll get you going with regards to syndication for sure. And if you love the show, hey, love to hear from you. Uh, leave me a review on iTunes. Love to hear from you there. And uh, yeah, anyway, so that's it for today. Hope you guys found that useful. I'll catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.